welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Winning with Patents and IP Podcast. This is Jackie Hutter coming to you from the worldwide shedquarters of the Hutter Group in beautiful Decatur, Georgia. In this season, we will be talking specifically about how startup companies need to use different tools and techniques to create and deploy patents that provide meaningful protection for valuable innovations being brought to the marketplace. While not all startups need to create patent protection in order to get paid back for their hard work and investment, those that do need to understand that the protection that they need in order to get paid back is often quite different from the type of protection that established companies need to obtain. In my many years of working almost exclusively with startup companies that were creating and delivering innovative technology to their customers. Not only have I seen that most patents fail startups, I have been able to identify the primary reasons why I believe this to be the case. In this season of my podcast, I'm going to be sharing some of my knowledge and insights with you with the hope and expectation that you'll be able to apply this knowledge to your own startups. Before we get started, I want to do my usual bit of housekeeping. The views expressed in this podcast are mine as a commentator on IP strategy and do not in any way constitute legal advice. Anybody seeking to create and deploy patents or any forms of IP is strongly encouraged to identify and engage with an IP council that best meets the needs of their business. And as I hope will be apparent in this and subsequent podcast episodes, Startup companies may need to vet and select different IP counsel than they might otherwise. Now let's get started on this episode, which is called Why Patents Fail Startups. You may be wondering why I didn't call this podcast episode Why Startup Patents Fail. And the reason for that is very intentional. I don't think that startup patents fail. I actually think that patents fail startups. Now, I didn't come to this realization overnight. It was actually a progression of learning that I had a course of several years where I was working almost exclusively in and around the startup company ecosystem. I want to put emphasis here on the in the startup company ecosystem as opposed to the around the startup company ecosystem. I know a lot of patent professionals who work around the startup company ecosystem because they do patents for startups. However, I know almost no one who truly understands how a startup differs from an established company because no patent professional I know has ever actually worked in a startup company. And this makes sense. How can a startup company afford to hire a patent professional until it has some degree of validation for what it's doing, that there's going to be even a reason to need a patent? This means that Startup company founders and those that advise them will go hire outside counsel who is out at law firm whose business is in the business of getting patents. They're not part of the business of creating innovation for customers that they will pay for. And you might think, what's the big deal? A patent's a patent, right? But no, startups are different from established companies, and that means that the patents that they obtain must also be different. Now, again, I did not come to this realization overnight. I quite candidly struggled with why hard-earned and well-compensated expertise generated over many years 
did not seem to fit the situations in which I was advising startup companies. And then one day, it was like a light bulb going off. I realized that startups are different. Therefore, the patents that, that we have to get are different. And this was a realization I only came to after having been CEO of a startup technology company. Early in the last decade, through an odd collection of events, I somehow found myself as CEO of a startup technology company. Very little of what I was doing every day as CEO of that company had anything to do with the expertise I brought to the table as a patent attorney. As CEO of this company, I learned very quickly that technology does not sell itself. And it's also pretty hard to separate investors from their money. With neither revenue nor investment, we were nothing. And job one, therefore, had to be to find money so that we could continue to move forward. Of course, unlike other startup companies, we had the benefit of my time being effectively free. And so we didn't have to pay for patent protection. And we, in fact, got a really broad patent allowed on our technology. That should make us happy, right? Actually, it didn't because we didn't have any customers. And a patent on a technology that nobody is interested in buying is worthless. My decision to let our patent application go to abandon after it was allowed with, with ostensibly very broad claims was transformative to me. Unless and until we could have identified a willing buyer of our technology, then there was no reason whatsoever to even think about filing a patent application. Now, to be clear, what I'm saying here is not that we needed to wait for revenue before we filed our patent application. Rather, we need to understand better what the customer would pay for prior to trying to protect something, because if there's no buyer, there's nothing to protect. But when there is a validated buyer, and that buyer is scalable, you better make darn sure as a startup that you're protecting what the customer is going to buy, or else you're making it possible for somebody to come in and say, thank you very much for doing the work and validating that customer. We'll take it from here. I think this is a good time to go in a little bit of history about startups, and it's fairly recent history. In fact, it's only been in the last 12 to 14 years that startups have been considered to be a unique entity that needs to be managed differently than established companies. And that's where the fundamental distinction should be and must be between patent strategy for startups and patent strategy for established companies. Startup companies exist to de-risk technology opportunities. Established companies could make the same investments, but why should they? They already have customers. They already have markets. They already have distribution channels. While revenue with these companies may increase or decrease based upon how well they serve their customers with new products, at the end of the day, each of these established companies has customers, which means that they exist as going concerns. These companies' new product offerings will be based upon what they have offered customers previously and how they might serve them better. These are the customers they know, and they seek to enhance the revenue streams that they have already. When one of these established companies introduces a new product to its customers, it certainly wants to prevent its competitors from providing that same product to the customers. In other words, their revenue streams are often significantly affected by the presence or absence of a high-quality patent on that product that they're introducing. I have never seen, and I would think it would be exceedingly rare, for an established company to go out of business 
due to the absence of a high-quality patent on a new product introduction. However, the opposite is true for a startup. If a startup is able to validate that a scalable customer exists for a product that it's bringing to the marketplace, any revenue available for that scalable customer available to other companies that also seek a piece of the action, unless there is some degree of high-quality protection for that customer. This means that unlike established companies, startups do not protect products. They must protect customer value. Some of you might be recognizing that what I'm fundamentally talking about here is what was originally called lean startup management and what is today generally encompassed as how all well-managed startups conduct themselves. Now, the purpose of this episode is not to explain lean startup to folks who may not know what it is. And I'm going to go ahead and put in the show notes some background to lean startup for those of you who might want more information. My point here is that lean startup tells us and shows us that startups are different from established companies. This means they have to be managed different. And a significant part of that different management is developing different patent strategies that more appropriately fit the unique characteristics of startups. The patenting framework that we work under today in the United States and that I and every other patent professional trained under does not align with the needs of startups. This system, which was established primarily in 1952 when established companies were operated as closed systems, assumes that products can make it to the market without any degree of disclosure to customers. Anybody who has any experience with modern startups knows that this is exactly the opposite of what a startup needs to do. A startup needs to get out of the building and talk to customers. You don't know what somebody wants until you ask them, but patent experts tell us not to talk to anybody or else you might blow up your patent right. But why would you get a patent on something nobody wants to buy? This is just one of the inconsistencies between existing patent strategy, traditional patent strategy, and its lack of alignment with what startups need. I will put a link in the show notes to an article I wrote on this subject for anybody who's interested in learning more. But to wrap up this part of the conversation, at a minimum, if you talk to a patent professional who cannot understand how lean startup affects the way you manage your business, you need to look for a new patent professional. This gets us to the first reason why patents fail startups. When a patent attorney like myself at a prior life first meets with a client, we ask them, what did you invent? When we do that, we're asking someone to tell us what they did in the past. But as you hopefully get by now, that question is wrong. Startups don't have a past. They only have a future. And that future only exists if they can find customers that will pay them for a product that will only exist in the future. This may seem confusing and overly complicated, but it's really not. Let me break this down with an actual scenario of how this played out with a client of mine that I've been working with for several years. This increasingly successful company, which probably should no longer be called a startup, has developed a technology that is being adopted widely in the relevant industry. I started working with the company close to eight years ago when it was just two guys in a conference room at our local tech incubator. The CEO, let's call him Carl, met a recent PhD graduate, let's call him Pete, who had based his graduate research 
on a technology to acquire commercially valuable information from images. While Pete's graduate research had led to successful results, successful results were really only applicable to small-scale applications. In order for the technology to achieve widespread adoption in the relevant commercial area, the technology would have to be much easier to implement. Pete met Carl at the technology incubator and explained to Carl how he thought easier implementation would lead to broader adoption of the technology. It's important to note, however, there had been no real adoption of the technology to date because it was too hard to implement. This is the typical chicken-egg problem in the startup. Will somebody buy the technology if it has not yet been adopted? How do they know they want the technology if it's never been available to them? Carl and Pete founded this startup company based only on a hypothesis. The hypothesis was if Pete could figure out how to make the technology easier to use, that technology would be adopted by a customer. But who would that customer be? What would they buy? Why would they buy it? Carl and Pete had no clue because there was no customer. It was a hypothesis, remember? It's important to note that Carl brought me in very early in the process because he had been part of two successful exits in the past where he understood that patents had been a driver of exit value. However, he always wondered if he could not have made even more money if he had done a better job at aligning the patents with the actual business strategy of the company. In the early days of this company, Carl was out meeting people and seeing what needs they might have for technology that would solve problems. And Pete would see if he could develop solutions that would meet the customer's needs. In other words, there was no need for Pete to create any technology if there wasn't a customer. From the earliest days of this startup, Carl would have me come in once a month and sit down with he and Pete to discuss what they had done in the last month. Not only did I get to see the technology evolving in real time, I got to see the potential customer's reaction to that technology. In the first few monthly meetings, it was apparent to each of us that there really wasn't anything to file in a patent application. The technology was too, too early, and even if there might be some legs, if you will, to the technology, some reason to claim it, if there was no customer, then there was really no reason to do that. After about six or seven months, however, and I remember this very distinctly, I said, this feels right. It feels like we have something here. And I went ahead and prepared a patent application that we, we all thought was, was pretty good. It described the technology that Pete had developed, and it aligned that technology with what the customers were responding to, that yes, the customers would like a technology that would enable them to do something new that they hadn't been able to do before. But there was still no revenue. All customers were still hypothetical. Although it seemed like we were getting closer to actual customer validation, no customer had yet signed on the dotted line. It felt like we were getting really warm, though, and so it made sense to file a provisional patent application, especially because technology in the area was evolving very rapidly. Once we had the provisional patent application filed, Carl and Pete and I kept having monthly meetings to see whether the technology we described in our provisional application was still hitting the mark with potential customers, and to stress test whether or not the technology that that Pete was continuing to develop was straying from what we had set out in the provisional application. 
Of course, if what we set out in the provisional actually turned out to be a dud with potential customers, or if the technology had strayed from its original incarnation in the provisional application, there would be no reason for us to move forward. That provisional application would either cover a technology that wasn't going to be brought to the market, or it would cover a technology that nobody wanted to buy. In either case, there would be no reason for a startup company to move forward with a patent application that did not align with its business strategy. Fast forward several months. I still remember this moment like it was yesterday. Carl, Pete, and I were having our monthly checkup call. Carl was explaining to me how he had scored a in-person meeting with the chief innovation officer of one of the largest corporations in the country that had a division in which the technology that they were developing might be a good fit for one of the company's existing product lines. Carl explained to me how this chief innovation officer of this company had said to him, Carl, that's really cool. Have you protected it? Carl did not understand the significance of this statement, but I did. I was driving at the moment, and I said to Carl, let me pull over. I want you to pull out the patent application and make sure that what we wrote in the patent application is what the chief innovation officer told you was really cool. And when Carl went back through the patent application, it turned out that what we had thought was important was actually what the chief innovation officer thought was important. And that patent application turned out to be our foundational patent application that we filed as a utility application using the accelerated process that got it allowed in less than a year, which we'll talk about in episode two, where we were able to demonstrate to potential partners that not only did we have patented technology, we had technology that covered the value proposition that they cared about. Importantly, if these potential customers wanted access to the technology, they would have to partner with us. And these partnerships would give us access to the insights we needed to develop technology that would serve them even better. Remember, they knew their customers. We wanted them to be our customers. And so we needed their insights to help them serve their customers better. What we were doing as a startup had absolutely nothing to do with invention. We were not inventing anything. We were identifying problems and figuring out how to develop technology that would solve those problems. It follows that a patent system that is set up to protect inventions is not aligned with what a startup company needs. And this is one reason why patents fail startups. Another reason why patents fail startups is because the way they are typically drafted does not capture the future state of most startups. That is, most startups end up pivoting two or three or more times during their development. Even if I have good, solid customer discovery that indicates that I have hit the button with the customer, that doesn't mean that customer is going to exist in the future. Referring again to Carl and Pete's startup company, several years ago, we had achieved customer validation in a particular area. We thought that the customers were going to be bringing us big bags of cash we want a particular direction. We filed a patent application at that time, but I pushed them really hard to say, you know what, if this customer doesn't sign up the way we think they will, what adjacent markets, what similar markets might also have a customer need that could be served using our technology as we understand it today? Note that I did not push them to define additional technologies that may solve the problem. The technology was actually fairly irrelevant the technology enabled the problem to be solved. The technology was not the problem to be protected. 
it follows that we were more interested in other problems that were similar that our technology would enable being solved, not other technologies that were hypothetical. And gosh, we didn't even know what they were because we were developing our own technology. In other words, we were not trying to figure out how somebody else would design around our technology with other technology. We were trying to figure out what other product we could provide to customers using our technology insights. And remember, at this time, all of our customers were hypothetical, even the ones we thought were pretty sure bets at the time we filed this patent application. Fast forward a couple of years, and it turns out we weren't being brought big bags of cash for what we originally thought the patent application would be directed to. In short, we knew our technology would work in a particular area, but we couldn't force customers to buy us if they didn't want to. As a startup company, we had to pivot to the market that showed interest in our technology because that was the only way we could achieve revenue that we needed to survive. Because we had pushed ourselves to think outside of our current market at the time we filed the patent application, we were able to file a new application based upon the earlier application that included claims that read on our newly validated market. Additionally, and this is super important, our patent filings beat everybody else in the marketplace to the patent office. In fact, just the other day, we received a notice of allowance and a patent on a commercial application that was covered in the originally filed patent application, but which we had no idea we would ever be in the market of six years ago when we first filed the patent application. The patent application also mentions and certainly covers several other commercial applications that have not yet come to fruition as products in the marketplace. But if they do, and we are still responsible for the prosecution of these applications, you can bet that we'll be continuing to file patent applications that have claims directed to these newly identified commercial opportunities. Patent applications that we file as a startup must include optionality. That is, those patent applications have to include subject matter we believe will be reasonably certain to be implemented in the near future based upon the knowledge we have today and also options for new business models, new customer opportunities that may exist in the future if the ones we are working on today do not in fact pan out. It should be obvious in this case. Focusing on the invention is the past and startups must care only about the future. Because if the startup cannot realize the future, nobody will get paid for the hard work that they're doing today. We have to make sure that we're protecting the future for the right reasons. And in this regard, I wanna be very clear. We are not, as a startup, obtaining patents so that we can ourselves go to court to enforce our patented technology against other companies. A startup that is thinking about litigation is in the wrong business. A startup is in the business of validating a business model and acquiring customers for the purposes of either scaling the business itself and becoming a grown-up company, or by exiting the business to another company, a grown-up company, that wants to scale the validated business model itself. I, as a startup CEO, am taking my competitors to court instead of bringing them to the table and generating strategic partnerships with them or getting them to buy me, the only people that are going to be happy are the lawyers. And you know who has the budget for lawyers and may even have lawyers who work for them inside the corporation? Lots of them, the grown-up companies. 
No startup company that I have ever worked with has the resources to spend on litigation. Patent litigation is incredibly expensive. The average lawsuit costs up upwards of a million dollars. If a startup is spending that kind of money on litigation and not on developing their business model, they're in the wrong business. Chances are you're not going to be able to find an investor who's going to be willing to fund litigation, no matter how good your patent rights are. So what good is a patent for a startup if you can't litigate it? This is a conversation I have to have with every CEO who has not done strategic patenting in a startup before. And candidly, it's a hard conversation to have because what I'm saying here goes against a lot, if not most, of the information that people have been fed by the patent industrial complex forever. You get a patent to protect your products, and if somebody infringes on your rights, you go sue the heck out of them. But as we just talked about, suing your competitor as a startup means you're not advancing your own business model. You're advancing that of the lawyers. But I would not be having this conversation if I could not say with absolute confidence that patents are supremely important for many startups. Let's go back to Pete and Carl's startup that takes information out of images. The multiple patents that we have obtained over the years have been critical for us getting the established companies to the table so that they would adopt our technology to provide their customers with solutions. You may remember the old tagline for BASF, we don't make the things you buy, we make the things you buy better. That's what Pete and Carl's business does. And what that enabled us to do was to embed ourselves within the systems of the established companies which means that we have become instrumental to the solutions that they themselves are providing to their customers. And it was kind of interesting about a year and a half ago when one of these customers said, Pete and Carl, we'll take it from here. We don't need you anymore. And Pete and Carl were able to tell this customer, well, you can't use this technology anymore because we have patents now. And so you're stuck with us. So our patent rights gave us sticky revenue as to this customer and other customers. And that revenue continues to scale today. Our building of a robust patent portfolio has also enhanced the investment that we have been able to attain. The markets in which Pete and Carl's business operates are very patent intensive. We are able to point to our sophisticated patenting strategy and portfolio that we've developed over the years as proof to the investors that we know what we're doing and we know how to play in this marketplace. And now that we're getting closer to what looks like an exit, our patent protection has additional value to a company that might acquire us, that is a grown-up company like I alluded to before, because that grown-up company wants to acquire a competitive edge in its own market and our patents will allow it to have a competitive edge against its own competitors. Put simply, and as I often tell my clients, we don't patent for the product or business we have today, we patent for the exit we want. And those companies to whom we're going to exit care about patents. Now, Pete and Carl's business is very successful, and patents are effectively the cherry on top of the sundae of the value that they have created in the marketplace with revenue and customers and continuing to develop the technology. But there are situations where the patents may be the bulk of the value that can be transferred at exit to another party. In this regard, I had a client several years ago that was in the predictive analytics space. They had some amazing technology. They had figured out stuff that nobody else had, had figured out before. 
They had some investment, but it became clear that this company was never going to have the investment and the market penetration that they needed to in order to really make a dent in the marketplace. In other words, they were never really going to have enough customers to pay the investors back. Investors then started shopping the company. We had filed two really broad patent applications that were making their way through the patent office. When the CEO let me know that I needed to talk to the due diligence people at this large company that was thinking about buying my client. This company was a multinational brand name company, and it was clear during the due diligence process that this company cared very much about the patent applications. Sure, my client had some really cool algorithms and some really cool insights about predictive analytics in this particular space. And these technology insights could be transferred to this large company to allow them to build a business around this new way of thinking about predictive analytics. But acquiring my client's business created additional value for them because now they could also prevent their own competitors from providing the same solution. And as I indicated before, large companies like this have no shortage of lawyers who are ready and able to go to court to enforce their patent rights. In retrospect, it is clear that this client would never be that successful with their business model due to the dynamics of the marketplace in which they were working. Nonetheless, the investors and the founders were able to recoup a good portion of their investment in large part because of the robust and effective patent strategy that they had successfully executed. A more recent client is knocking it out of the park business-wise with artificial intelligence and information technology. Now that they have introduced a solution for a long-standing problem, people are taking notice. And in fact, their biggest competitor, whose product actually was substandard to my clients, has been bought by a huge company that wants a piece of this growing market. Even though our competitor's product is substandard to ours, they are continuing to make inroads in the marketplace, likely because of the vast resources of its new parent company. Additionally, this competitor is moving closer and closer to our value proposition for which we obtain broad coverage and we continue to extend the patent rights in follow-on filings. While I hope this is not the case, it might actually happen that we're not going to be able to compete with them in the market that we're in today just because of the resources that, that they have. However, we'll be able to compete in adjacent markets that they don't even realize exist, and we will be able to get patent coverage to those markets because our foundational patent filing includes those adjacent markets. We may pivot and our patent rights will be able to follow us into those adjacent markets. Moreover, as our current market continues to grow, it is quite likely that an established company may want a piece of this growing market. They can either build their own solution or they can buy our patented solution. While I can't predict the future, I'm pretty certain that my client will be acquired by a large company that will want to grow this market and compete with the deep-pocketed competitors. This third-party build versus buy decision is made a lot easier when a company like my client owns broad patent rights that can facilitate their entry into the marketplace. I have another client that has been working in medical imaging technology for several years. Very early in their development process for this technology, they identified an incumbent manufacturer of an existing medical device 
that was being sold in a stagnant market. This manufacturer licensed my client's medical imaging technology to drive innovation to give it a leg up over its existing competition. Importantly, this licensing revenue enabled my client to continue with its R&D efforts to improve the technology and grow the company without having to take dilutive capital from investment. Fast forward a couple of years and this technology has been adopted widely and is really shaking up this medical device market. And I expect my client to be acquired in the not too distant future. However, because the founders did not have to take outside investment in order to move their company forward, they get to make the decisions, which is a nice position for a startup founder to be in. I've given you three or four examples here of how you use patents short of litigating against somebody else, protecting your product, in other words. To circle back to the subject of this podcast episode, how patents fail startups, by focusing the attention on how you're going to protect your product shortchanges the true value of patents and patent strategy in startups. I hope you can recognize that every startup probably has its own different strategy, some of which can benefit from a robust patent strategy, others for which patents have absolutely no relevance to the value creation of that company. The key for your startup is to figure out when and to what extent patent strategy matters and to create and deploy the right strategy to get that desired business outcome. The definition of strategy is defining an outcome and working backwards. That's all we're talking about here. And because the business strategy of a startup is fundamentally different than an established company, the tools and techniques that a startup uses in the patent world need to also be different. In episode two of this podcast season, I will give you some actionable techniques that I have used repeatedly over the last several years to help my clients get the desired business outcome for their own startups. We've come to the end of this episode. There's some show notes, as I indicated, that will have some information about lean startups and also will provide you some places to look for additional information if you don't want to wait for the next episode of the podcast to get started with your startup patent strategy. Thanks for joining me.